There's very little talk of a crash when property markets are booming, and the longer prices run for, the shorter our memories seem to get. Are there warning signs that we're all missing out on in this frenzy? Interest rates are ultra low at the moment, and the question then is, how long will they stay ultra low? Will they start to rise? When will they rise? The forward yield curve is already suggesting prices for money will go higher, and that could actually translate to higher mortgage rates later. Now, if mortgage rates double from where we currently are, mortgage stress goes above 50%. That's a big deal. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au What happened to the JobKeeper cliff? Where is pain being felt amongst property owners amid the haze of rising prices? Today we've coaxed Martin North out of the bear cave and we're keen to find out his perspective on the surprisingly buoyant property market we're experiencing at the moment. For those of you who haven't yet come across Martin, he is the founder of Digital Finance Analytics, a boutique research, analysis and consulting firm who specialises in offering insights into the dynamics of the mortgage lending, savings, payments and superannuation sectors. We've spoken with Martin in two episodes previously and if you like what you hear today, go back and check out 123 and 143. Thank you so much for joining us again today, Martin. Great to see you. Hello and uh, boy, things change, don't they? But uh, look, just to be clear, I'm <laughs> not in a bear cave, I'm in a realist cave. <laughs> we did establish that the first time we met. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talking about sort of the bear versus bull though, Martin, I mean, I mean, some people would call you a realist. Some probably would say that, you know, over the years you've, you've thought that there was going to be big crashes to the market. I mean, how does it sort of feel when you see the market sort of doing what it's doing at the moment? I mean, does you do you feel comfortable? Does it frustrate you? I mean, what's, what's some of the feelings <laughs> well, you're feeling? So, so there's two perspectives. The first perspective is if you look long-term, property is very significantly overvalued relative to any of the metrics that you'd care to choose, be it GDP, et cetera, et cetera. The only one where you could argue that it's a little bit more affordable is because rates are so low and therefore from pure affordability, not repaying the capital, but pure affordability in servicing the mortgage repayments it's a little bit where it was, right? But my frustration is that, you know, we have, we've dug ourselves this sort of strategic hole that this has been going on for years and years and years. And every time we get another problem, basically the answer is, well, let's just uh, lend some more mortgages to people, let them go buy houses, let the prices go up because that will increase the wealth effect. The trouble is, this is so artificial now as to be scary. That's the first point. The second is, and of course, my scenarios currently are suggesting prices will go higher. So be clear, you know, in my central scenario now, prices will, oh go, God. Higher, will go higher ahead. <laughs> that is because of the massive amount of government stimulus and the very low interest rates. And in fact, I've had my central scenario for the last nine months suggesting prices would go higher. So, you know, let's get that on the table when people say, oh, you yeah. only say that prices go down. No, I said they'd go up. But tactically, they're going up. 
But you can understand why they're going up. It's all the government stimulus, it's all the government, you know, throwing money at first time buyers and, uh, you know, the home builder and stuff. And the fact that banks are now lending more freely than they were. So mm. we have got more people with bigger mortgages getting into the market, rising prices. Now, the final thing to say here, but it's not uniform, right? So if you look carefully at where prices are booming, it's houses, standalone plots. It's not necessarily in the high-rise sector, um, particularly yeah. if you're looking in the, um, you know, the suburban ring. And so once again, we need to be very careful and go granular. And you know, one of my key sayings is, Go granular. You can't talk generically about the property market. There is not a property market. There are millions and millions of little property markets with different dynamics. And so it's really important to what's going on. And the trouble is some people have sort of been swept up with everything's going up. It's going to be massive. Got to buy now. When in fact, that may not necessarily be the right strategy. So people should still be cautious and careful. Do the analysis, do the detailed work to understand what's going on on the ground, where you're looking. Well, there you go. We could probably wrap it up then and just say that's it for this episode. <laughs> 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 but I do have something that's interesting to me. I'm starting to get people saying to me, oh, well, I'm just, particularly in the first home buyer space, I'm going to go to where the opportunities are. And the opportunities are in inner city apartments and, you know, where there's been oversupply and people are finding it hard to sell. There's opportunity there because you they still have this idea you can't go wrong in property. And I'm like, oh, God, please don't do it. Please don't do it. Well, uh, look, on, on the high rise, I was doing some, you know, I have my one-on-one conversations with people where I actually go into their uh, in individual suburb and look in detail at what's gone on, right? And I've had four or five conversations with people in the high-rise sector or looking at the high-rise sector. And when I reveal what has actually gone on, in the high-rise sector, in that inner suburban ring, particularly newer, newly constructed or relatively newly constructed, you know, they are really horrified as to how much prices have fallen. And then I start talking about the rise in strata fees. And then I start talking about flammable cladding and poor quality construction. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, yeah, I can see now why prices are on the way down. Then I talk about the fact that property investors holding those high-rise properties are losing money on a cash flow basis because the rentals are lower than they were. And that's the point, of course, that people never actually look at the net rental income. They always look at the net rental return, I should say. They look at the gross return. So in other words, yeah. the price to the theoretical yeah. rental, which is meaningless. Rentals are down. Mm-hmm. So, so. Actually, a lot of people conclude, well, you know, maybe now's the time to think of selling those high-rise rather than buying. And unfortunately, of course, the new construction sector is, is, is trying to hang deals out there and promise to underwrite rentals for the first three years or something. But that really... You know, the maths don't work very well. So I think people should be ultra, ultra cautious with regard to the high-rise sector. And, you know, my view is there are very few real good deals there at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, they're interesting. Can you give us a bit of an example of just, you know, a case study, I guess, that you've seen maybe in Sydney or Brisbane where you've seen price falls? You've also seen strata prices rise. Because I think the strata price rising is a really interesting point because, mm. you know, when they purchased that, they thought, oh, we can afford $1,000 a quarter. But if that's now $3,000 a quarter, A, they might not be able to afford it, but also if they tried to sell it and somebody else looks at it and says, oh, God, that's expensive strata there, I'm not going to look at buying that, that's what also can cause prices of that particular building to fall. So 
have got any examples like of obviously the exact dress, but you know some type of properties you've seen yeah. where strata's gone up dramatically. Yeah, so the, the, I was talking to to, to one of uh, my one-to-one followers, uh, and they've got six properties in a Redfern high-rise. Right, in one building yep. or one complex. In one complex, right? Jesus. And, yep. and, and so, and so, my first observation was concentration risk. Right? Mm, yeah. Um, now, of course, a lot of those were actually targeted at students, right? Mm. Okay. Uh, and you know, basically, short-term rentals. Tried Airbnb, that didn't work very well. Uh, got relatively poor quality occupancy through that, and, and then of course, all the students disappeared. So. Of those six, two are currently let, and they are getting 30% less rental than the last year. Four are vacant. Yeah. Right? And no prospect at the moment until the borders open of those properties uh, basically being let. Mm. Now, they're all four available on Airbnb, and they've had no takers in the last four months, right? The strata costs there have gone up in the last year by more than 20%. And the uh, reason for that is this building was about 10 years old and they've got a few structural cracks that need attending. They've got some issues with water ingress on the balconies, flat slabs that were cast with, you know, not the proper water prevention system and, of course, eventually the water comes through. So they've seen the strata prices rise. But they've also got some flammable cladding issues as well. And now there's a discussion about who's going to pay for the flammable cladding. Of course, the builders disappeared beyond the warranty period. So basically, the question now is, what do you do? Do you try and sort of get out? Do you try and start selling? And of course, you can't put four or six products in the market at the same time, because <laughs> that'll just depress the prices. So, so the strategy that he was following was drip feeding into the market. First one went on the market, not one single visit. Ooh. The pricing, you know, is, is lower than what he paid for it. So the classic example where the capital value is going down rather than that, where the costs of running the property are going through the roof, if he's fortunate because he's got some other houses as other investment properties in regional areas and they're doing a lot better. But net-net, this is a huge running sore without an escape route. Oh, mm, my God. Uh, you know, that's a real on-the-ground case. And I should say I did actually get his permission to uh, relay the story before I actually told it. And, I mean, I guess the real value of that property is obviously a lot lower than they think it is because, you know, when they try to list the property, they would have listed it for a price. But without a single viewing, it's not actually worth that, obviously, in this current market. And so this is a, it's a painful thing for people to really realise is that, if they actually had to sell it right today and actually get a deal done, what would be the price of that? And I imagine it would be a lot lower than they think it's worth because what they think it's worth is probably what it was worth in 2019 or 2018. But what it's worth in 2021 with the borders shut is obviously dramatically less. And so people hold on to the past, I guess, uh, and want to hold on to that feeling or it'll go back to like it was in 2019. They, they bought in 2017, right? Yeah. Oh, which, yeah. Which was oh. the yeah. perfect peak. <laughs> Yeah, right? yep, exactly. Prices oh. prices then slipped fifteen to eighteen percent since then, and are now about twenty two percent down from, from that peak. There's been hardly any upturn over the last few months, right? And the, the question, of course, is 
well, do you sort of hang on with by your fingernails and hope that things turn around the borders open and then the students come back? Or do you try and actually, you know, start an exit strategy? And that was really the, the basis of the conversation, which was, well, just think about this. You know, you are one of a number of people in the area with a similar problem. You're not the only one. We know that the, the vacancy rates in the area are somewhere between 15 and 18%. We also know that the proportion of students coming back from international sources will stay low for at least the next few months, probably a year or so. And we also know that there's a lot of stuff on the market already and more coming on and the asking prices will have to be significantly lower. So the question becomes then, well, do I take the hit? you know, and, and, and walk away. Do I try and find a way to muddle through, you know, Airbnb and, and, and try and just get somebody in at a really low rent and hope that it turns around? But they've already lost that capital. And the point I made, mm. I made in the conversation was, and the opportunity cost, right? Because yeah, the fact exactly. that you sunk all that money in, you know, some time back at, at the last peak means that you are actually literally leaking money day in, day out. And he hadn't actually done the maths, so we sat down and did and did the calculation. Oh, right, that would have been painful. Which um, basically said, well, let's look at the cash flow first. So, what's the money in? What's the money out? What's the strata? What's the mortgage repayments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Of course, mortgage rates have gone down, so that that helped a bit. But there are other costs there. So, underwater on a net cash flow basis, and then we said, well, let's look at the capital losses, and the capital losses even after tax are significant. Now, that basically suggests that this particular case study is going to find it very, very tough to turn this around anytime soon. And I don't think it's just a one-off case study. You know, my conversation suggests that this is actually a relatively similar conversation to ones I've had in Melbourne. And I've actually had some similar ones in Brisbane too. Brisbane is slightly better. The returns are slightly better. But Sydney and Melbourne, those high-rise inner suburban areas in particular, they are really, really, I think, you know, areas of concern. And there is no simple exit strategy. They basically bought the wrong property, the wrong strategy at the wrong time, and frankly, putting six, you know, six in the same block whilst he got a significant discount when he did it. And, uh, you know, it was very convenient. And, <laughs> you know, you can all understand why it seems, oh, it seems yeah. obvious at the time. You know, I always say to people, if you're going to think about investing in property, spread the risks, you know, be careful about what you buy, where you buy. Now, interestingly, give you another case study. Up in Brisbane, I spoke to somebody there who's got an older style, low rise unit, mm. bought at the same time. Mm. 2017, right? And in fact, a similar amount of money was paid. So it's a it's, it's a larger property. That one is actually doing much better because effectively rents have actually not fallen and there's significant demand. It's convenient for the city centre, et cetera, et cetera. But that's an older style, low rise. The strata fees there have not, hardly moved up over the last three years. They don't have any flammable cladding issues. They don't have any issues with structural defects other than normal state repair. They're going to have to pay for the, a new roof at some point, but you know, not immediately. Mm. Yeah. That's a completely different proposition. And if you do the calculations on that, then sure, they've lost a little bit since 2017. Not a lot, a little bit. But in terms of cash flow, it's positive. And so that is not a situation which, you know, people should be concerned about. So you can, if you buy the right property with the right sort of mathematics attached to it, you can make it work. But it's a really good object object lesson about what you should be thinking about and where you should be thinking about makes a huge amount of difference. Well, the problem though with positive cash flow is that it masks often a capital problem. 
And, you know, even that Brisbane one, yes, it might not be hurting in a cash flow sense, but it might still not be doing its job as an investment. Right. And I guess with the poor Redfern person who's bought six of them, for God's sake, you know, and, and it's like the flammable cladding, for instance, even in 2017, potentially was a discoverable. It, like at the moment, you've got this recency bias and everyone thinks you can't go wrong, you know. And so this person's obviously thought you can't go wrong and students must be a great bet. It's why you, you know, it's why you go and buy six of them. And there's been a whole heap of overconfidence bias there that's led them to make these decisions. And now, obviously, you know, they've suffered they're punch drunk, I would think. This <laughs> these people. I mean, they've they've really hit been hit from every which way. So, so can you I know, just pick up one point? You said that yeah. flammable cladding was discoverable. Now, that's a very uh, interesting- potentially. I'm not a hundred percent certain yeah. on the dates on that. That's why yeah. I'm saying that. So, so that my, my observation is, it's extremely hard for prospective buyers, even now, to know whether there are flammable cladding issues. Many of the strata companies are not very transparent about that particular situation, even if you ask hard questions. And of course, a lot of people, when they go buy a unit, they look around the unit and look at the sort of the shiny taps and think, oh, it looks pretty good. They don't ever walk out out into the common areas and look down in the car park and look in the the basement, right? Um, People just don't do their due diligence. And uh, No, they don't. uh, And they should. They've got to. Because it makes such a huge difference. And, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity of speaking to a number of people who've got, again, in high-rise developments where they've got cracks in the basements that have been there for quite some time. Nobody wants to talk about them. The reason is no, that as right. soon as they are actually highlighted, or the same with flammable cladding, as soon as flammable cladding is highlighted, then the value falls through the floor. So everybody looks the other way and says, oh, I can't be that serious. When it might be so if you are going to buy in high rise you've got to look beyond the apartments you've got to look in the basement and you've got to ask the hard questions about flammable cladding and about structural issues now the question i've got for you veronica is do the strata companies have an obligation to disclose when you ask and this is a very good question and i don't know the actual obligation on that i believe that the sales agent has an obligation and I believe that the vendor has an obligation because it's un- in my view it's under material fact. Now I could be proven by the letter of the law perhaps I'm wrong but my definition of material fact as, as I understand it, as I apply it, is anything that would deter, would cause a person to think twice about A, buying the property and B, the price that they're prepared to pay. And absolutely flam- the presence of flammable cladding is one of those things. So the owner knows whether the building's clad or not because there is a register and all buildings have a requirement to be on that register if they have it. So the owner knows there's in the agency agreement, certainly in New South Wales anyway, on the sales agency agreement there's a there's a material fact clause in there that the owner is obliged to tell the agent and once the agent knows, the agent is obliged to tell prospective buyers. So forget the strata manager for a minute because their agency agreement is not with as a sales agency agreement. You know what I mean? They, in terms of law, I guess, with who's contracted with who, they're just contracted to the owner's corporation to help them run the building. They're not, they're not a party to the sale of it. So it's, and, you know, we know this ourselves when we look at strata reports, they've all got holes in them. And so we sort of 
list a whole bunch of questions that are raised for us when we read through them, put those questions to our practices to put them to the strata manager and the sales agent. Probably half the time we get a strata manager come back saying, can't comment because you're not the owner. So then we have to backdoor it and say to the agent, well, can you find this out from the vendor, please? Now, in a hot market, unfortunately, a lot of vendors are saying, oh, no, I don't know anything about that or the agent just doesn't respond. And as a buyer, you've got to take the FOMO out and not hope for the best. You've got to bloody not buy that property if there's questions that you can't answer. And you also got to learn to understand it. it's not hard to work out what cladding looks like and then go, well, okay, it's clad in something. It's either flammable or not flammable. Let's go and try and find out which one of those two things. But if it's painted brick, it's obviously not clad in anything. You know what I mean? It's basic stuff, really, if you <laughs> if if people take responsibility for themselves when they're actually looking at what they're buying. Right. But you made an interesting point about the register, right? So that mm. register is not publicly available, is it? No, it isn't. No. That's the problem. So there's no mm. there's no easy, obvious way to get disclosure, right? Hundred percent. And, yep. and so you have to use your eyes. I absolutely agree with you. And I've said that to a few people. Use your eyes, you know. Yeah. Clock- <laughs> you know, cladding means you've got a sheet of something on the outside that goes yeah. probably <laughs> over multiple uh, uh, over multiple properties, right? Therefore, if it's clad, you're on notice to ask the next question, which is what is the type of cladding that's on the building? And then the next question is how do I find out precisely the state of that cladding, right? And the point I then would make is, Unfortunately, if you ask the agent and they give you a verbal reply, it's meaningless, right? You have to get something in writing, in my view, because you need protection yep. later, right? Because Agreed. agents will tell you, well, what they what they think you want to hear, right? And in some cases, they'll tell you the truth. In some cases, they will tell you some of the truth. So it is really important to go through that process. And, I, you know, I don't want to scare people because, you know, I, and I'm not saying never buy property because I, I actually think property is still a very good investment if you buy the right property in the right place at the right time. But there's a set of processes you must go through. There are questions you've got to ask because otherwise, frankly, you know, you make more errors on the way in when you buy property than almost any other part of the journey? Well, I think the main thing is that the property market is unregulated, really. And so if you even if you think there is a legal case for you down the line, you should never rely on that as protection because, you know, it, the whole process of actually getting that, you know, and going there and legally and lawyers and fighting and mm. et cetera, I wouldn't rely on absolutely anything besides you really being confident that you know what you're doing and you know you're buying a quality asset. So if there's any, you know, doubt that is this thing cluttered or flammable or even that type of apartment, I just would be avoiding that, you know. I, and, and so I think you, with property market, it's all about buy beware. It's all about no one's there to protect you. No one's going to stand up for you, you know, and even if something goes wrong, it's all on you. And I think you've got to have that real high personal accountability because, in reality, if something does go wrong, there's very little to protect you. Mm. Uh, but you've got to counter that with fear of missing out, right? At the moment, in many areas, people are really worried, worried about not being able to buy and therefore are cutting corners. Yep. And, and, and unfortunately, this is precisely the time when you must take the processes seriously. You must make those inquiries. Do not get caught into the sort of the frothiness that's there at the moment. This is precisely the time to be doubly careful, in my view. Absolutely. I mean, you would see this, Veronica. I mean, I'm sure that you're seeing a lot more busy roads going for big prices, you know, dodgy Renaults, lots of different things. Uh, DA is not approved, people buying without contract checks or building in pests. 
you know, there's a, you know, we've had clients in pretty much all those situations Mm. where they're bought without doing their due diligence or they've not got the property because someone else hasn't done their due diligence. Yeah. You know, what are you sort of seeing, you know, in terms of defying logic, I guess, Veronica at the moment? Oh, absolutely. All of the above. I mean, we've had a number of situations recently. I'm not sure if I mentioned this on the podcast or not before, but we started jokingly calling ourselves good deeds, property underbidders. (laughs) Because, you know, like, you know, what are we doing here? We're not buying anything. For for a period of time there, and I'm quite serious, we were doing our evaluation on a number of different properties for clients and we discover something that nobody else would have known. And one particular case, and I'm sure I've talked about this one, so I won't go on about it, but, you know, we discovered the parking wasn't approved. And... We notified the agent because it was like, well, you shouldn't be advertising as, as approved. Now, it was an interesting process they went through to try to justify that they could continue to do so. But anyway, whilst counsel said it's not approved, the vendor solicitor said, oh, well, it's beyond the statute of limitations period or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, well, that doesn't really help any buyer, does it? So we did go for that, but obviously our client did, you know, did restrict the their upper limit in terms of their negotiations instructions to us. And, and that was with our guidance and with absolutely our encouragement. And, of course, somebody else went and paid more. And I'm pretty confident that person has no idea that that parking is not approved. And that's just one example of many. And, you know, it, we have to have that conversation with our clients to say, look, sometimes I feel like you're a bit disadvantaged, but that's if you let FOMO run away. The reality is that at one point, yes, there's that maybe maybe it's fine. Maybe they'll be fine. But what if it isn't? In if it isn't, one day they'll realise that they've paid too much for something that doesn't actually exist. And I don't want you to be in that position. So I'd rather you not buy that property or, or you only buy it if you can sort of get it at a price that mitigates that risk. JobKeeper, Martin, have you seen uh, any initial outcomes or any areas that are really, you know, it's only been a, a month or so, I guess, or even not even that, but what are you seeing around that? It's a good question. So I run my mortgage stress surveys and uh, the overall mortgage stress is at 41 point something percent, right, which is as high as it's been. Now, there was a little bit of relief two or three months ago, but that relief is now reversing. And one of the factors that's creating the problem is the end of uh, JobKeeper. So we are seeing some households struggling with their cash flow. Remember, I define stress as, as cash flow, right? And, and, and that means that this is not necessarily going to fall off a cliff tomorrow afternoon. It's a long, slow grind. But just to remind you, um, before we had COVID, the proportion of households was about 32% in mortgage stress. We're now at 41 point something percent, right? Now, that's 1.5 million households who are struggling with cash flows. Now, when you parse that out, um, about one third of them had some support through the last year, either by the way of interest relief from banks or from JobKeeper. That's all ended. And so they are actually finding it quite difficult. Others are definitely back in work and are actually not, um, not finding it a problem. But unfortunately, a lot of the pressure on households is now very much in those high growth corridors in and around our major cities like Campbelltown in in in, in Sydney or um, Narrawarren in in Victoria in New sorry in uh, outside Melbourne. I always love the term high growth corridors because <laughs> you know agents use it and spruikers use it to say that this is a high growth area, so you definitely should be investing here. But when you say it, what do you mean by that? <laughs> 
what I mean by high growth corridors is mm. high numbers of new constructions currently going on. Uh, a lot will be including the knocking down of old places and putting up, um, you know, uh, apartments on what used to be individual um, plots. Or the other thing I see is often subdivision where you have now three villas. Have you noticed the term villas now popped back in? You know, it's <laughs> it's one that people use a lot. And I was a small townhouse, right? <laughs> Uh, Single levels, yeah. Yeah. Uh, In some cases, two level, but, you know, the point is it's very small. But (laughs) what we're seeing is the proliferation of more and more high density develops on the outskirts of town, some brand new, some redevelopment of um, areas, like areas around Point Cook, for example, down in in, in outside Melbourne, which is a combination of new development versus um, other development, which is redevelopment of, of, of areas that were built previously. Now, that's what I mean by high growth. There's high growth in terms of numbers of people going there. So a lot of people are migrating, a lot of concentration often of um, first-generation Australians, so people have moved from other countries. Um, we often see that there. And we often see families with quite large um, numbers of kids. And those, So that sort of stuff is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about value growth. In fact, I would say that uh, high growth corridors are actually going backwards. Again, if you look at houses in those areas, they are still significantly down from where they were in 2017. Um, And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people there are in high degrees of mortgage stress. They're struggling to make those mortgage repayments. They often took a significantly large mortgage out to get by the property, which of course, when it's priced as new, is always what, 15 to 20% above probably true value. And then, of course, the value goes down when you try and sell it later. Well, guess what? You're now competing with that new property being built down the road, which is still overpriced. So, I mean, that cycle is something that people don't get. So when I map this, I see those high growth corridors very much being a significant concentration in terms of mortgage stress, right? Uh, the other one, of course, is close into town. So the high-rise sector, particularly closer into town. Um, Melbourne, postcode 3000, and Sydney, postcode 2000, both have high mortgage stress. Another one uh, in, in New South Wales, Paddington, that area around there. Um, again, high levels of stress. So it's pockets. It, you know, it, It's not everywhere, but it's still significant. And going back to where you asked the question, Chris, it does come back to JobKeeper adjustments, but also the broader economic situation we have. And underemployment, for me, is the most critical factor here. In other words, people don't have the hours that they want to have, so they might be working a few hours a week and therefore aren't classified as unemployed. Mm-hmm. They are absolutely underemployed and not generating the hours to generate the income to pay the mortgage and everything else. They often have multiple jobs, several part-time jobs. It's, I mean, it's a messy situation at the moment, unfortunately, and I think it's going to get worse over the next few months. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. You mentioned Paddington. Now that sort of surprises me because it's there's not a huge amount of new development there and um, it's very much, you know, old money, eastern suburbs in many respects. 
What's going on there? Yes. Is that an anomaly in terms of where it's located or what, what's the so story? So I'll give you another little sort of thumbnail case out of my conversation. Again, I got permission to, mm. to relay this. So this is somebody who bought there just over a decade ago, right, and basically bought a property which had – it's a house, right, and the house basically has a separate um, self-contained flat which is let out, right? Now, the problem there is that that self-contained flat – is now not being let out as much as it used to. Again, it was an Airbnb thing because it was quite convenient, but they can't do Airbnb. They just can't get the interest. So so the income dropped dramatically by about half from that flat. Now, that flat was actually partly paying for the overall mortgage on, on, on the property. The, the person who's actually in the academic sector was working full-time in academia. He was made redundant about a year ago and is basically doing part-time work wherever he can find it, but his income dropped by about 60%. Now, the result of all that is the cash flow in is not sufficient to cover all the costs, and therefore that was that's a mortgage stress situation. Now, sitting on capital value, great, but still struggling to repay the mortgage. And in fact, uh, there's a refinancing thing going on at the moment to try and extend the duration of the mortgage from about 20 years to 35 years to try and actually um, reduce the, um, the, you know, the outgoings because there's no short-term way back because you know, the, ac- the academic sector is, is going to continue to catch a cold for a long, long time. Um, now, you know, incomes there were pretty good if you were in full-time tenured um, uh, uh, you know. Um, positions. But if you weren't, then it was always a bit dodgy and it's now really, really dodgy. So that's another example. And and again, I'm seeing that, you know, played out again and again and again, right? Um, so yeah, you've got, to, you've got to sort of look at individuals because, you know, the overall metric for stress in the pattern area is quite a lot lower than those outer growth areas. But nevertheless, there are stories like that, which, which come home. And that's what I want to sort of underscore to people today that the You've got to look at individual people and their stories to really understand what's going on. You can't just talk generically about what's happening to prices or what's happening to incomes or employment, right? Every person's situation is different, but there are a lot of people who are really hurting at the moment. So, I mean, it's an interesting one, uh, Paddington, there, because you're in an area where there's inherent restriction on supply, but also there's an inherent undersupply because ultimately lots of people in Sydney would love a terrace in Paddington, let's say, because of the lifestyle benefits and that's never going to change. And so, yes, there will still be people scattered across the city at all different demographics and all different locations whose situation is dramatically nowhere near as good as it was a couple of years ago and are going through debt stress. problem is if it's in somewhere like Paddington, the demand is so much more than supply. So even if there is a increase of supply looking to sell there's no there's way more demand than the increase and so th- that person there yes they're debt stress and they're worrying about paying the mortgage and they really what they also do is they don't want to sell that place that's, that's exactly mm. right i mean that was part of the discussion we had which was well you know should you actually take advantage of the fact that prices are now moving up again and uh, you know get out and, and basically solve your financial problem but he didn't want to do that because they think that's a long-term good value bet. So you've mm. got this this amazing – that's why they're refinancing, right, because they're basically refinancing yeah. with with some of the equity growth that's been there to be, give them a cushion over the next two or three years to be able to get through. But, you know, mm. that's, there's a really interesting observation there about, well, yeah, you can trade off capital growth um, for cash flow to a, up to a point, but there's a point where you've got to ask the question, is that still a sensible strategy? True, and you've got to have the capital growth in the first place. But <laughs> I think what uh, you mentioned something earlier, you, you, you 
drew the distinction between affordability versus paying off the capital. Yep. And I think that's a very interesting point because, uh, you know, I heard Alan Kohler, he was on Q&A a couple of weeks back and, and you know, was, they were talking about unaffordability and housing affordability and the rest of it. He said, he said house is affordable, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> the people can afford the, the repayments, you know. Obviously the, the deposit is different for a first-home buyer, but once you're in, that, that is the problem at the moment that, that uh, rates are so low, that makes them affordable. But, yeah, that is very much that that differential. So in your situation, like your Paddington people there, you know, if they extend, you know, they refinance, they add another 10 years or whatever to their mortgage, um, you know, and maybe they go interest only so that they can tie so get the ride this wave out, ultimately they're still going to end up with this big debt debt balloon at some point, right? Mm, you're right. And they are going interest only and the banks are happy. Right. Mm. Whereas two or three years ago, I remember that APRA and the Reserve yeah. Bank said, oh, interest only, bit of a problem, you know, financial stability risk. A uh, uh, general point, point here, of course, in the last budget, which was released last week, uh, we're basically, as a country, going interest only, right? You know, we, we, <laughs> yes. we're going to be paying, what, $131 billion <laughs> of interest over the next 10 years, assuming interest rates yeah. stay at, what, yeah. 1.7%, right? There's no story in the out years in the budget of paying off the capital that we've actually accumulated, right? Now, I would argue that whilst you, you can, you know, don't draw too many parallels between a household budget and the country budget, the fact that now nobody's worrying about repaying the capital is a very concerning situation because the capital ultimately has to be repaid. Now, okay, you could argue maybe if you've got a Does property. It? Well. Are we all just getting used to living with just massive debt over well, you know, and servicing it? There's, there's a really interesting observation here. Are we actually ultimately really – although we are owning a property with a mortgage, actually renting the property, right? Mm. Are, yeah. are we never, ever going to pay it off? And and maybe the concept of, you know, getting a mortgage and paying it down quickly, which, of course, is the old strategy. That was what I did years ago. I mean, I hated having the mortgage and I want to get rid of it as soon as I can. But these days, with interest rates so low, you know, is, it, yeah. is the best strategy to say, well, you know, I'm just going to sit on that capital debt. I don't care. Um, you know, the capital will look after itself. I'll just service the uh, interest until, of course, you realize there's one catch, and that is interest rates, right? Interest rates are ultra mm. low at the moment. And the question then is, how long will they stay ultra low? Will they start to rise? When will they rise? The forward yield curve is already suggesting prices for money will go higher, and that could actually translate to higher mortgage rates later. Now, if mortgage rates double from where we currently are, mortgage stress goes above 50%. Mm. That's a big deal, right? So we're ultra sensitized now to what interest rates do. Now, the argument on one side is the Reserve Bank will never raise rates because they know that if they did, it would cause an absolute mayhem of a catastrophe, right? The other side of it is they might be forced to because the international financial markets, the Fed and everybody else will be driving rates up and we can't afford not to follow if they do that. Um, again, I always say to people, Okay, rates are really, really low. That doesn't necessarily mean that you should basically borrow 15% more than you did last year simply because rates are lower because you've still got to answer the question about how are you going to deal with this downstream. Now, if your strategy is never to repay the capital, well, that's one strategy, but just think it through. There are some risks of that. If the other strategy is to pay down the capital as quickly as you can, um, that's a different strategy. Those two things are polar opposites in terms of thinking it through. And again, people often don't think this through. Yeah, so I mean, rates do drive behaviour. So what we're seeing um, definitely a shift in mentality or propensity to sort of desire to take on debt or, um, and you know, people who are a bit more conservative, you know, potentially are changing their view and saying, well, rates are low. 
Um, they're going to likely stay low. I at least get for the next three or four years a really good fixed rate. Maybe I should just take on that debt. So that's definitely shifting. But I think Carlos um, Cacho, who was one of our episodes recently, highlighted a really good point. Um, a lot of, say, uh, the bigger mortgages, they are taking the view that um, when rates are low, um, the, the need to pay it off is lower um, because, you know, opportunity cost of, you know, burning cash on interest. So why are we, we thinking about sort of paying this off? Because at some point um, you can always just sell that property and then you can downsize. So what you're ultimately trying to do is build a uh, a, a net wealth, I guess, within that property. Um, and then you, the actual paying it off is through sale. And I don't think that's really played out, but I can already see it. it is. And so that's encouraging more people to take on more debts. And whether they should or shouldn't um, is a side point. But if that's happening in the market, that's what you get creating more demand. And I think you made a really good point as well, Martin, where um, you spoke about interest only on homes. Um, absolutely, it's been really difficult to do that probably for four or five or six years. Um, and, you know, when the APRA sort of came in with interest-only limits, they sort of really made it hard to get interest-only on home loans. And it still is like that. But if we did shift to a point like it was in 2014, especially with these responsible lending changes where you can get interest-only on home loans um, and you can do that at sub-3% interest rates, um, that would send an absolute rocket up demand um, because people would take that view which I was speaking about so I think it's a really interesting thing to watch at the moment is if if we can start to get interest only on home loans uh, it's only going to end in sort of one thing which um, yeah it, it's potentially likely to happen well that's one of the reasons why I'm forecasting price rises from this point right I think the lending standards will be eased further I'm already seeing evidence from my surveys of more people being able to get those interest only loans and in fact the banks in some cases have recommended people switch to interest only loans to reduce their repayments right so the, the banks are not actually now resisting that request sometimes not always but sometimes yeah. right so it is easier and I think more so down the track but it's worth reflecting on this right in Japan there's a 100-year mortgage, right? Oh, An intergenerational yeah. mortgage, essentially. So, you know, yeah. and just pause and think about that. What we're actually saying is that it's more and more like renting, right? So when you rent, what you're doing is you're basically paying to live in a place, right? Mm. A 100-year mortgage basically says you're paying to live in a place, and so we're seeing this sort of interesting bifurcation reversing where effectively whether you've got a mortgage or whether you haven't got a mortgage, what you're doing is very similar behavior. Now, hopefully, if you've got a mortgage, you're still accumulating some capital growth, assuming prices go on rising, which, of course, is an interesting question because, of course, capital growth is linked to interest rates falling. Well, they've, they've pretty much fallen to as far as they're going to go. Uh, lending standards, are they going to go looser? Probably yep. they will. Um, so there's a little bit of upside there. International migration, probably lower ahead rather than what we've been used to. That's going to be dampening in terms of demand. But Japan's got negative population growth. Oh, no. Is that why they're going to 100-year yeah, loans? Exactly right. And, <laughs> and they've been quantitative easing the longest and they've got negative interest rates. Mm. I think loan terms are really interesting, one, Martin, because – that reduces your repayment. Mm. So if you have a twenty, you know, a million dollar loan and you're paying it off over 20 years, your repayment's X. But if you go 30 years, which is what most loans are set up, it's much lower. Yeah. Um, and if we start to see, you know, 40 or 45 or even 35 year loans become the norm, um, 
that would absolutely allow people to have confidence to borrow more money. Um, and, oh, and, and God, is, it just gets worse. Well, <laughs> but the banks would love you for that, right? The, mm. Because basically the, the yeah. banks don't want you to repay the capital. The banks want you yeah. to service the loan. They want your cash flow, right? And I, I keep saying to people, people understand you are basically reduced to a series of cash flows. That's how the bank thinks about you, right? As long as you can go on servicing yeah. the loan, it can be for 20 years, 40 years, 60 years. They don't care, right? All they want is your money. Yeah, of course, that's what they're in business uh, for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, and if, if this whole responsible lending uh does happen you know i don't know if you've got any ex- extra information around that it's all going to be quiet from what i can see um yeah. it was all meant to happen in march april or at least some it, it's coming back it's coming it. back into parliament at some point um there is yeah. significant backbench um resistance to it uh the way the government is positioning it is of course is covid recovery right but of course now you know the booming the booming <laughs> lending rather suggests that is a bit of a sort of sour flavour. There's a lot of uh, resistance from um, and consumer groups uh, in, in terms of trying to lobby for it. What the way they're doing it is they're trying to roll it into SME lending and trying to convince the backbenchers that the reason you do this is to enable more lending for SMEs, despite the fact that of course SMEs are not within the responsible lending obligations directly. So, mm. so there's a lot of noise, a lot of uh, you know mm. back background um, briefings going on at the moment. I think it will come back into Parliament probably end of May, beginning of June. Um, but what will happen at that point is interesting. And remember that you know prices have shot up dramatically since they thought about it. Lending has been growing much faster more recently at the banks. So you wonder whether, in fact, it's a uh, you know. Is it really even worth thinking about? My theory has always been responsible lending was more about the banks trying to avoid class actions from past history, right? So Absolutely. that's the reason why they want it um, uh, eroded. And I would argue that there's probably somewhere in the dim and distant past, there was a bit of an agreement between the banks and the government that if the banks help people through COVID, the, the, the government would actually uh, find a way of um, disabling responsible lending. So that's that's my theory. I can't prove it, but I, I have a feeling <laughs> that could be the case. Oh, I love a bit of conspiracy theory. <laughs> That's why you and I get along, uh, Mark. I mean, the, the other um, the other tact, I guess, at the moment, which you uh, happened, I know, never want to say at last week, but I guess it did actually happen last week. I mean, um, or even this week with state government in Victoria yep. increasing stamp duty. Uh, I think this is a really interesting uh, topic because uh, in New South Wales, we're trying to, you know, potentially the Treasurer wants to move from stamp duty to land tax, I guess, or, or an annual stamp duty, I guess. And Victoria, they're increasing stamp duty on the uh, for investors, but also for, you know, expensive properties over $2 million. So what's your, what's your view on that and, and how it's, I guess, different to what we're trying to do in New South Wales? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I've got the view, I've had the view for a long time, that stamp duty is a highly distortionary tax. Um, but it's one that the states love because, of course, it's um, money up front, which they uh, mm. that they can then, and you know, in New South Wales, what, up to eight, eight billion a year or something. It's a huge number, right? And Victoria is not mm. far behind. Um, I think it's very interesting that Victoria is basically talking about uh, lifting it and they're arguing they need to do it because of the significant um, debt that they've incurred because of COVID, right? So that's 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 the logic. Um, in New South Wales, the, the, you've got the choice, I think, as I understand it. So you can basically either do land tax. In other words, you pay so much a year for the duration of the property or you... Not yet. No. That's what they're talking they're about. They're talking about it, right? Mm. Yeah. Or, or you, you you pay it up front. Now, there's an interesting question because, of course, if you own the property just for a few years, then paying land tax 
might be good because you end up paying less, mm. right? Whereas if you actually own the property for 20, 30 years, um, you end up probably paying a lot more. And remember this, folks, they can always put the land tax rate up later, right? So mm. it might come right. in very low to start with and it might look a good deal, but um, later then potentially you might um, find that they charge you a bit more, right? It, with regard to stamp... Also, once the property is converted from one-off stamp duty to ongoing land tax, it can never revert. Ah, exactly. Yeah, and that makes an interesting question about what about the next person who buys it, right? Mm. Um, and then the other point there is with stamp duty, well, yeah, you know you've got to pay it, so you sort of in, can incorporate it, and in some cases it's incorporated into the mortgage transaction. I, I didn't actually realise that, uh, Veronica. So part of their policy is that if you, for example, uh, I buy a property you know, in 2022 and I decide to go for the annual, mm. when I try to sell that, that person yep. doesn't have a choice whether to go stamp duty or annual again that's that's the plan yeah yep. ah yep. it's it's a, it's a nice that's how they transition it it's a nice little backdoor route once so once it's once it's flagged as um, you know land tax then it's always going to be land tax well they're wanting to transition away mm. from stamp duty they, yep. they don't like it but it's a very contentious how you do that is very problematic. So this is a way to basically mean, yeah, there's no reversing. <laughs> and, and the other point there, of course, is the government, um, you know, is going to want to manage this over a period of time because otherwise its cash flow gets gets completely destroyed for, for a few years, right? Because if, if mm, stamp duty yeah. suddenly disappears, then so, – so what they're trying to do is cleverly, right, ride the volume of transactions exactly. up, right, grab the stamp duty on the way through – and then they'll begin to sort of steer people towards land tax and over a period of time migrate to it. So it's a long, slow burn. But I think people should be very, very cautious about the switch because I do think there are some strings attached to it which nobody really wants to talk about. I agree. Just prices rising, yes. I mean, that's the ultimately the state government has said as part of their pitch is that they think transactions will increase by 50%. Um, and... Every time a transaction happens, generally it's it's the person buying it has more debt than the person mm. selling it. Yep. Um, and so <laughs> what you're doing, usually, yeah, unless it's, um, you know, most of the time. So uh, what you're doing every time that happens, you're creating more debt, you're creating more loans, you're creating, uh, and that debt is what pushes up prices. So whether you an investor sells their apartment and then a first-home buyer buys it with a 90% loan, uh, then the investor takes their profit and potentially does something else. And so through those transactions, you create uh, momentum in the market and that's ultimately what will be pushing prices up. So a lot of people thinking, oh, you know, it's a great, I don't have to pay 5% stamp duty. Well, I, I'd, I'd probably say that prices will rise more than 5% pretty quickly um, to offset, you know, that 5% savings. And, and bear, in mind, bear in mind, land tax is related to the value of the land. If prices continue to rise, guess what happens? Yeah. Yes. That's a good point. So yeah. the thing is with land tax, you know, your the office of sorry, the land titles office uh, has a land value attached to all parcels of land across the state, right? And your rates, so your council rates are determined according to the land value. So, but how it's how that works is it's a proportion of all the land value in that council area. And so, if rate if your land value goes up, doesn't mean your rates go up unless yours goes up proportionally, disproportionately to somebody else's, right? Um, but certainly land tax is not, it's not capped at a bucket. Mm. It's, there's not a bucket of land tax and it's proportioned out according to whatever the land is worth. And I hate land tax. Economists love it. They think that um, it's a fair tax. I freaking hate it. And I certainly hate it the way it's, um, the way it's currently uh, applied 
in New South Wales. So potentially if it was evened out amongst every single residential landholder and it was it was, you know, it was a very even measure, perhaps I would agree with it. But even their transition is not it doesn't fulfill that requirement in my book. I, I, I tend to agree. I think it's a bit akin to the toll charges on the Harbour Bridge. Right, which, which was there only one way. Well, well, remember, remember, it was a temporary charge when it was first built, right? Yeah. Uh, well, <clears throat> except that it's still there and it's gone up, right? Mm. Uh, I think that's the problem with land tax. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, it, they, they they need money to run the state, yeah. you know, and property is just far too tempting. Exactly. Well, speaking about uh, government, you know, the next one is probably the budget, which is timely. You're on again, Martin. I mean. Uh, it seems like they really want to keep on encouraging home builder a little bit. I mean, but mainly it's a lot of first home buyers with you know two percent deposits. You know, um, oh, single families, single families, mostly. Tar- if you look at the price range, targeting units, mm. right? And that yeah. that's really more aligned to helping out um, their high rise building mates who are having great difficulty selling them. In my view, yeah. Exactly right. I mean, that's the the price restriction forces certain either regional or it's um, you know it's apartment in the cities yep. really. Um, yep. and, and look, the, the, I, I think it's really important that we we talk about the need for social housing and we we need affordable housing for people who actually currently can't get access to you know, housing. We need that. Yes. I'm not sure that what the budget is proposing is actually helping on either of those two things though and uh, the problem i have is that the um uh, uh, the whole strategy seems to be more about let's just drive the housing flywheel a bit more get a few more people in keep the ponzi scheme going because we need to um continue the lending and we need the um you know the growth and the wealth effect um there is very little strategic thought in the budget a lot of money being wasted on things that are you know, good, but not necessarily strategically good, and a lot of stuff yeah. that, in my view, could have been done and should have been done and wasn't done. Um, I think we'll look back on this as a, a trillion dollars of, frankly, mostly wasted money because we won't have a legacy beyond it, um, and that's my real problem with the budget and the way that it's shaped. Well, I think it's going to be a big issue. Housing affordability um, absolutely is already, you know, because the situation, you know, wealth effect, you know, certain people do well, some people don't do mm. well. Um, basically people who've got property versus good property versus, you know, um, who, have, who want to enter the market, a lot of first-time buyers and the next generation um, absolutely will be getting upset with prices running and um, that discontent will lead to a bigger pool every year and that, you know, become a voting issue and social unrest, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I think the government needs to be careful now is that they're not addressing it with these sort of slips that sort of policies, um, hence why Labor went with negative gearing a couple of years ago, right? Um, so I think you're going to see this as a big sort of election thing in, in a couple of well, years. Well, the problem, problem is you've got you've got this what I call the K-shaped economy, right? You've got a, a proportion of people who've done really well and are doing really well. Their prices uh, of their properties are increasing. Yep. They're you know, back employed and doing really well. You've got another section of the economy, about a third of them, are really struggling. Their cash flows are very limited. They can't get into the property market that, you know, and unfortunately, just the pure mathematics of how the election system works, you only need a proportion of the of the population to vote for you, right? And there are enough mm-hmm. in the upper leg of the K to actually get them re-elected. So I regard the budget as predominantly uh, an edifice for re-election rather than, oh, strate- rather than strategic thinking for the long-term future and prosperity of well, Australia. Case in point, <laughs> nothing for the environment. 
hello. <laughs> I mean, really, renewables, environment, I don't think it was, even think it was mentioned in there. Now, uh, Martin, have you got a property Dumbo for us? I mean, we've been talking about a few of them. And of course, we are kind to our Dumbos because we can learn from them. You've got another one? Any other examples? Yeah. So um, this is a very interesting one. Uh, it's actually another of my one-to-one conversations. And um, uh, basically, people went to view a particular property uh, down in regional New South Wales. Uh, it was actually up in Austinmere. Prices there have gone up at more than 20% in the last um, year. So it's very, very a uh, hot market, right? So they basically mm. went and saw this property and um, basically put an offer in and then realised that they'd actually put an offer in on the property next door, <laughs> which was also for sale. <laughs> and How did they do that? And they didn't notice uh, until the um, searches came back and the solicitor <gasps> said, well, hang on a moment, you say four bedrooms, this has got three bedrooms. Are you sure? <laughs> What's going on? But no one accepted it so easily. So when you say they put an offering, did they actually sign a contract? Uh, the, the the contract was actually um, signed and exchanged, but uh, they've unwound it. So there was with a cooling off period. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so 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 the moral of the story is, folks, when you actually rush in and think, oh, I've got to get this property right, make quite sure. Make quite sure that you know that you're buying the property that you think you're buying, right? Because um, the problem there was that the numbering in the street was not linear and uniform, right? And so Mm. they assumed it was number X when it was number Y, um, despite the fact that it was clearly, you know, on the on the on the poster, as it were, right? So so there's a. (laughs) It sounds weird, right? But I I just thought that was that was ideal for the podcast. (laughs) That's fantastic because that is basically just like you're so. I can imagine you're so uptight and, and worried and FOMO crazed that you just rush, rush, rush. <laughs> it doesn't even occur to you that it could possibly even happen. It must have been the same agent selling them both. It was the same agent, exactly right. And, um, in fact, the agent didn't accompany them around the property, right? So so basically, <laughs> so basically, you know, that they came back and said, well, we've seen this property, it's number X, right, and we want to make an offer, right? And so the agent said, great, you know. Uh, oh, Wow. <laughs> So it was, and you're thinking, gee, that's a good price. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that, that was one of the reasons why, um, uh, you know, the price was what it was because it was only a three-bed, right? So basically it was an offer on a four-bed, but it was a three-bed, right? So, oh so it was a really, really object lesson in, you know, getting your ducks in a row, stopping and thinking, and just make quite sure that you are actually bidding what you think you're bidding, right? And rather, <laughs> so there you go. Simple due diligence. But luckily they got it all unscrambled and um, uh, they actually – Found another property um, just down the road. So, but it, it was it was one of those things. They told me about it, and I just I couldn't stop laughing. Oh, that's fantastic! Well, Thank I'm God, to be honest, got out of I, it. I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, these are the things. <laughs> these the things like this do happen. Um, they do, and <laughs> Thought you know, the wrong they house. Happen, oh my God! But um, they do happen in reality. So, as uh, a cracker, Martin, um, and also I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, Always great chats. Uh, love your data and um, look forward to having you on in a few months' time. Oh, great. And thanks very much, uh, folks. And look, I really enjoyed talking with you guys because I think we can bring a, a dose of reality to the property market. And if we can, then that's good for everybody. Absolutely. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... I think, you know, one real good learning for us all to you know, embed in our sort of financial management, I guess, um, is to always be looking at your mortgage and be looking at it as 
not just as a, a tool that you're going to pay it off as fast as you can, but using it as a tool that can help you and give you more peace of mind and, and less stress and, um, and actually be constantly be sort of fiddling with it, I guess, to make sure that you're getting the best outcome. So yes, most people will say I can refinance it and get a better rate, which um, absolutely the pricing on mortgages in 2020 or 2021 versus the pricing on mortgages, say, five years ago is probably anywhere from 60 to 80 basis points cheaper than what you would have got a mortgage five years ago. So if you haven't refinanced in the last five years, if you go and look at other banks, you probably save yourself you know, 0.6 or 0.8%, like a lot of money. So yeah, you should do it for that reason. But the main reason you should always be doing it is it's always a, a risk management strategy um, and protecting yourself. So one thing Martin spoke about is lowering your repayments by extending your loan term. For me, that's actually a really good strategy because let's say you had a loan that was 30 years and now it's down to 20 years by just going back to 30 years what you're doing is reducing your your actual outgoing your monthly commitment which is reducing your um, if something happened to your situation you have less commitments but doesn't mean you don't pay off your mortgage just as fast you then use your offset account um, and you keep on building up money in your offset account so you still pay it off just as fast but you do it by having a lower repayment and using your offset account so there's other reasons why you want to refinance, um, not just around rate. It's also a risk management strategy. Like if you've got equity in the property, you may be able to pull that equity out. It's called a cash um, release and just have that money sitting in the offset account. You may not even use it, but that's a risk management strategy in itself and not just about getting a better rate. So mortgages, really every couple of years, you should just be sort of playing around with it. Can you lower your repayments? Can you release equity? And can you get yourself a better rate? Are there age limits on doing this? Um, it, it sometimes in some banks, yes, but you, you'd be surprised that, you know, even in your late 50s and 60s, you can potentially get very low, long loan terms. We're doing one at the moment. You know, he's um, a fair whack older than her. Um, and, you know, because she's a bit younger, then the bank is happy to do a really long loan term. Um, and these are in their 50s. So, um, yeah, you, you should be able to potentially do it. Um, they are, you know, you want to see LVRs to be a lot lower. Obviously, when you're long, uh, older, there needs to be an exit strategy that's clearly documented, et cetera, um, which might be paying out super or selling an investment or et cetera. So it's more difficult, but Banks being banks will probably still want to lend you the money. <laughs> and do people often refinance with their existing bank or is it that at that point that they really shop around? You can also. We, we prefer clients just to stay at their existing bank. You know, you've got all your banking set up. And so if the current bank is willing to come to the party, offer you a much better rate, the fixed rates are good, um, then, yeah, why not just stay? The problem is at the moment, um, or just generally, banks will never give you as good a pricing as a new lender would that will give well, wants your business really. Um, and so what you'll find is that you'll be able to get a much better deal by a refinancing um, than if you ask the better deal at the bank you're at. Now, if you, for example, get that better deal and go back to your existing bank and say, look, unless you match it, I'm going to leave, sometimes that will work. But you have to literally get a better deal to get the bank to give you a better rate, which is kind of what they call the loyalty tax. Um, you ask for a better deal, they won't do it until you say you're leaving and then they'll say, actually, I'll give you a better deal. Um, the other thing is there usually was a cost of around $1,000, probably less than that, to refinance bank to bank, but just think $1,000. Um, but all the banks are now offering cash back, basically, which might be two, three, or $4,000. Um, and so it's really free to refinance, plus you get $1,000 or $2,000 in your pocket for, for the pain. 
plus you get yourself a better rate uh, and plus you can do your cash out, extend loan terms, et cetera. So <laughs> at the moment a lot of ba- people are just swapping banks. It's so ridiculous. You just think, can, can I just go to my bank? Look, pay me to stay. Uh, it's interesting. Some of the banks are actually doing that. So they're actually giving you cash back without even refinancing because they know you can get cash back elsewhere. Mm. The banks really shot themselves in the foot with cash back. ANZ came out and said, oh, we're so desperate to grow our loan book. We were They were getting smashed at their shareholders, um, you know, meetings and that their loan book's falling. They're lo- falling behind CBA and Westpac, et cetera. And, and their processes, they were losing market share with brokers. And so we're getting so desperate. So they said, oh, let's just offer this cash back um, and this amazing two-year fixed rate. And when they did that, they absolutely flooded their business because the whole broker community said, what the hell is this? We're gonna, and then they went to all their customers and said, look, we can do this deal at ANZ. ANZ flooded their business and that really worked. They actually solved their loan book problem. The problem is all the other banks said, well, hang on a sec, if that works for ANZ, we're going to do yeah. this. And so then all the other banks started offering cash back. And now it's given that, all the banks, if they're going to want to win you as a refinance, they've got to offer cash back. So ANZ has just shot them all of them in the um, in the foot because <laughs> cash back really eats into their profits. Um, sure. Not only they've got to offer a really good rate, but now they've got to pay to win you as a customer, plus all the marketing and brokers, et cetera. So I don't know if the banks, um, they might look like they're growing their loan books, but they're nowhere near as profitable as their existing customers. <laughs> Please join us for our next episode. We are tackling your questions. We'll be covering the unit market. Are all inner city units on the nose? Have we got it wrong about capital growth in an age where nobody expects to pay off their big home loans? What's the deal with borrowing for limited title houses at the moment? What multiples of income is safe for a first home buyer to borrow? And what is a good income for buying a home in Sydney? Buying in holiday areas for short-term rental and who is actually buying in cities at the moment. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.